right, guys, welcome. Thank you. Good turnout for inviting us. Forgiveness of sin, uh, a hope of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done on the cross for us. We thank you for your Bible, for your word, that it goes forth to, to give us that message of salvation, that we might be transformed by it. And then you fill it with a wealth of information that continues to build us up, to edify us, to encourage us, to teach us, so that you might be glorified in us gaining more and more knowledge of you and who you are. So we ask that you would be with us as we gather today again in this place, as we seek to, to as the, the, the lesson is called adult discipleship, as we seek to obey your command to go out and make disciples, that we would be teachable today, that we would seek to understand what your word is teaching us about who you are. And furthermore, in regard to this study, Father, who we are as your, as your church, as your bride. So please encourage us through this message. Let it give us peace and edification and remind us of the purpose that you have for your church in the, in the, the time to come. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, checking next mic. Okay, just had to switch out mics. All right, so today's lesson is on systematic theology, the nature of the church. Um, it's an important lesson, especially regarding, you know, I, I keep thinking about the study that we did on church history as we went through and we started studying and looking at the church throughout history and all of the doctrinal difficulties that the church was faced with, all the persecution, all the division, um, we see that it's based on things just like this. The reason why we learn about systematic theology and why we learn about the nature of Christ, the nature of God, the nature of the church, is because throughout history there are constantly divisions being formed. The truth is always under attack by Satan and his minions and those in the world that seek to, to, to deny God, deny his power, deny his, his authority, and they are trying to twist Scripture. They're trying to give us false teachers. They're trying to give us a false gospel. So we need to hold firm to the truth. So the church is constantly being confronted with false doctrine that they have to establish and that they have to... They have to they have to say, this is false and this is true. And as those divisions crop up, the church itself will split apart. And some of the ways we think that those divisions are unnecessary and uh, the work of Satan as true believers are brought out of unity with one another. But there are also divisions that are absolutely necessary. Wherever the gospel is called into question and they're trying to twist us and turn us into a false gospel and especially turn us to a false Christ, we need to hold fast to the truth of God's word. We need to stand firm upon it. And we, at times, need to divide from others that would deny these things. That's why we are here. As we look at what is a church, as Bob mentioned earlier, it comes from the word ecclesia. The word church isn't actually the best translation. The word ecclesia uh, comes from two root words. It comes from ek and kaleo. Ek meaning out of, kaleo being to call. So that means that the root words mean to call out of, right? We are the ecclesia. We are those that are called out 
of the world. But the actual meaning of the word in the, in the scripture is very, it's, it's, it has a few different meanings, at least the sense of it can be used for a few different ways. If you look at the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the old Hebrew Bible at the time of Christ, they actually used the word ecclesia to translate the word from the Old Testament that was used for assembly. So it has that same sense that we aren't just called out of the world, but we are specifically called to assemble and to gather together. That is what the church is, and that's what the church does. So what is a church? Grudem defined it as the church is the community of all true believers for all time. And we see that all throughout the scripture. We see Paul constantly addressing his letters to different churches. In the book of Revelation, we see seven letters go out to the seven churches Specific locations, specific groups of people that are being uh, edified, they're being rebuked for certain sins, certain issues that they're dealing with individually as individual churches. And then there's also the global church, the, the complete community of the church, what we would call the Catholic church, which actually means universal. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, you don't have to turn there. I, 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 if this is your first time with us, I usually use a lot of Scripture, and you'd be spending your entire day fumbling through the pages. But in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, it says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, specific church, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord, Call in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul's acknowledging that the church is meant for individual established churches, individual gatherings of people that call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, but it also applies to everyone who truly comes to him in faith. Any true church of Christ that exists here in America, here at Grace and Truth Church in you know, Long Island, Pennsylvania, California, probably fewer of them there, but California, and there are some there, Mexico, Sweden, anywhere across the globe that call upon the name of the Lord Lord Jesus Christ and hold fast to a true gospel, we can call Christians, our fellow brothers and sisters, as a part of the Catholic, communal, universal church of God. That word, though, where he says that it's believers of all time also means that it's believers of all time. We acknowledge that Old Testament saints are likewise a part of the global church of God. That Jesus Christ didn't come to save some Israelites and some Christians. Jesus Christ said, I know my sheep and I lay down my life for the sheep. There is one bride of Christ. There is one elect called of God that he has come to save and to spare us from death. And that is God. In John 8, Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he was glad. And he saw it and was glad. When he met the men to amaze, he said that all the the law and the prophets all testify of me. Everything that the the Old Testament saints were hoping for and putting their hope in as far as a redeemer and and someone who would come and and restore peace to, to their people, the the, the person who would sit on the throne of David forever and ever, they're denying the fact that it was Jesus who came to do those things for them. And through their rejection, now the call goes out to all the Gentiles as well. 
pick it up. There's so much here. So as we look about it, so we understand that it's all the Old Testament saints, and it's all the churches, all the New Testament saints that exist, that, that started with the, the, the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, as we understand the, the installation of the new church that started after Christ was ascended, and now it continues all the way through the, the, the age. We see God making a distinction and calling us Jews, you know, the Old Testament Israel, he still understands that there are Jews and Christians, but we are all part of the same church if we're truly in faith, believing in the same Redeemer. There's a number of aspects of the church that come out through the metaphors that God has chosen to use to describe the church. He uses the metaphor of being a family. We're to call each other brothers and sisters. We look to our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We are described as a bride of Christ. In Ephesians 5, we read, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. This is the mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. We're referred to as a branch. In John 15, 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We see that same example in Romans 11, where Paul is talking about the, those, uh, the Jews that had rejected Christ being cut off, and now the Gentiles are being made a part of the church as a branch. It says, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them, and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Talking about us being living things, because we gain our life from Christ. He even switches that analogy as he talks about us in 1 Corinthians 3, where he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither one who plants nor one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. He also refers to us as a harvest. He refers to us as a temple, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? We're called a priesthood. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So a couple more were referred to as a house, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope. We're referred to as a pillar and support of the truth. And finally, most notably, we're referred to as a body. 1 Corinthians 12, we read, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For also by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. 
And as I said, through this, we understand that the church is Catholic. It is universal, encompasses all believers, Old Testament and New, for all time. The London Baptist Confession says, The Catholic, that is universal church, may be called invisible with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace. It consists of the full number of the elect who have been, have been, are, or will be gathered into one under Christ her head. So it's important to note here that there are some that would differ with that. Those being, if you've ever heard of dispensationalism, there are some that believe that God treats Israel as separate from the church, that they might all be redeemed under the blood of Christ. There are differences of opinion about this. But essentially that God's plans for Israel are unique, distinct, and separate from those plans that he has for the church itself, which we would absolutely deny here in this church. In Ephesians 2, we read, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition." He's gathered them together as one body of Christ. So does he have a separate plan for each? Well, while God may still have plans for national Israel, those whom he's called to be part of his elect children are one true household of God. They are the true Israel, the church, and are meant to be the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, which will come. We read that mostly in Romans 9. Where in verse 6 we read, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. But through Isaac your seed will be named. That is, the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered his seed. So it doesn't matter what your national background is. What matters is that from both groups, God will choose a select group, select elect group of individuals whom he will regenerate, whom he will give faith in his son Jesus Christ, whether as a promise, uh, something that will be fulfilled later on for the Old Testament saints, or something that we're already made aware of through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That we have a reality that we hope in, but it's all the same hope. So we ask, is every church a valid church? Before I go on, is there any questions at this point? Yeah, brother. I don't think so. As far as I know, Zion is synonymous with Jerusalem. I could be wrong, brother. Okay. Thank you, brother. Any other questions? So we ask, is every church a valid church, or is every Christian a valid Christian? We want to know, as we said before, what is true and what is false. Well, as we look at that, we examine, we have to note the distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. 
We claim that there is a visible church. And the visible church are those who are those who publicly profess Christ as Lord and Savior. In the visible church, we see them publicly and voluntarily partaking of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We see them seeking to live holy lives in obedience to the Bible and its teachings. We see the regular practice of the public worship of God through prayer, preaching, praise, and giving. We see the public condemnation of sin and those who seek to separate themselves from evil and from its evil practices and the philosophies of this world. And we understand that even in the visible church, there are beings who are imperfect humans that will still struggle with sin and will at some time seemingly fall away from the church. But we also acknowledge that the visible church consists of both true and false believers. Matthew twenty three twenty eight we read, In this way you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We also read about that in Matthew 13, which talks about the parable of the wheat and the tares, where it said that he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore again, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landover came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us to go that, uh, want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until this harvest, until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in the bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So we understand as the church goes forth, there are people, you know, as it talks about the, the force, the parable of the soils, the gospel goes forth and there are genuine believers and there are ungenuine believers. People that will claim to know Christ, people that will seek to live according to, to, to the commands of God, people that will look very pious, that will look very righteous. They mix in good with a church. But over time, they might be filled internally with hypocrisy. They might be seeking sin in their hearts. They might have no true love or knowledge of God. And God says this is how the church will exist throughout the entire age, that the wheat and the tares will grow together, Some of you will be genuine, converted Christians, those who love Christ, those who know him, those who have been transformed by his spirit, and there will be some among you that will be false converts. And that will either demonstrate itself over time, and you will flee and leave the church, as it says in 1 John, they left us because they were not of us, or it will be tested and tried in the day of judgment when Jesus Christ comes, and the wheat and tares are gathered, the sheep and the goats are separated, and God declares judgment on the unrighteous. So ultimately, when we think about how we interact with brothers and sisters in light of that, does that mean we scour the earth and scour the church and seek for, for unbelievers? In a sense, yes, we don't want heresies parading themselves within the church. We have to protect ourselves from false doctrines and false teachers. But ultimately, any brother or sister that you call a brother or sister they're displaying fruit or not, is ultimately an act of Christian charity. Martin Luther said just as much in The Bondage of the Will that when he was uh, 
debating with Erasmus, he responded, I do not say these things as if denying those whom you mentioned were saints or were the church of God. I say so because it cannot be proved, should anyone be disposed to deny it, that these specific persons were saints, but it must be left altogether uncertain. I call them saints and I account them such. I call them and I think them to have been the church of God. But that is by the law of love, not by the law of faith. That is by charity. So anybody that you're not sure of, if they're professing Jesus Christ as Lord and they're seeking to live as far as you know in in his will and his good will and in seeking to obey the ordinances and obey the commands of God, there's no reason you should ever deny that you would call these people brothers or sisters in Christ. You have to understand that your knowledge of them is, is... finite, and it's always going to be lacking. You cannot see the hearts of men. You're seeing the outward appearance of men. You can get a sense of people, but ultimately anybody that we call brothers or sisters in Christ, we assume are such until Christ comes and confirms it at the end of time. Now let's look briefly at the invisible church. Look at them. We see that they are those who have been inwardly regenerated by the Holy Spirit being given the ability to desire to to truly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior by faith alone. They truly desire in their hearts to live openly in all the ways which the visible church does, though, for some, the providence of God may keep them from such things in the face of persecution and other constraints, yet the grace of God may still allow them to live visibly despite these things, meaning that in certain places of the world, persecution might be so rampant that these people can't display their faith publicly under the threat of death. So they might be gathering privately in certain houses and stuff like that. And yet sometimes the grace of God will even allow them to go out and publicly proclaim their faith, even in the, fact, the light of the fact that they might be crucified or, you know, cruci- uh, or, or executed for it. But within the invisible church, others are still allowed to live and worship openly as part of the visible church. God has declared these individuals to be his elect children before the foundation of the earth. He has promised that he will never allow them to fall away from the faith in Christ, though they may still sin and struggle with sin. The invisible church consists only of true believers. The invisible church of true believers is known fully only to God and will not be made known to us until the last day. 2 Timothy 2, we read, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to depart from wickedness. So those that we see in the church might not all be of the church, the same way not all Israel was Israel. But all those that God has called to faith, God knows exactly who the invisible church are. And as he has called them, he will regenerate them. And as he has regenerated them, he will sanctify them. He will glorify them. He will save them on the last day. He will raise them up with Christ on the last day. All the invisible church will be saved. Not all the visible church will be saved. So in light of that, we have to briefly look at the need and the lack of purity in the church. We have to address the necessity of it. The church is called to be holy and called to be pure, and it's called to represent truth, and it's called to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each church will face its own trials with varying degrees of success. You 
Go to enough churches and you see enough things, you will see strife come within the church, you'll see enmity, you'll see heresies start to come in the church, and those churches will deal with them, some better than others. Usually what tends to tip the scale there is the maturity of the church. Those that hold firm to the the knowledge of God through the word of God tend to be firmly anchored in the truth of Jesus Christ. And they're not swayed by every wind of doctrine as much as other churches will. Doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. Churches are filled to the brim with, with, with imperfect people. You're being taught right now by a very imperfect person. The only thing that gives me comfort is that you're all imperfect too. Truly, the only thing that gives me comfort is that Christ is perfect. That's why any of us stand here. That's why any of us have joy. That's why any of us have hope and faith to come into this building and spend our time here. And worship God and sing songs to him because we have a perfect redeemer. Right? The failure of a church to maintain perfect doctrine or conduct does not necessarily disqualify it from fellowship with Christ or his universal church. That doesn't mean that God's okay with sin. But you cannot read the Bible, especially the New Testament, and the letters of Paul to the church, and not see that these churches were dealing with some devastating sin. 1 Corinthians, he writes about people that were defrauding one another. He writes about a man that was having sex with his father's wife. People that were following false doctrines. In Galatia, he says they were following a different Christ and a different gospel. He doesn't fail to call them the church. He warns them, he rebukes them, he tries to teach them. But it's not an automatic, you're done. You know, we, we sort of see that that way at times. We think, oh, this person, there's, a, there's sort of a line we draw on the sand. Once you cross it, you're done. You're out of the church. You're finished. This might be these people are struggling with sin. And what do you do? They're part of your church. You teach them. You gather them together. You edify them. You build them up through the word of God. And you try to see and you pray that God will correct the problems in the church. 1689 Confession again says, The purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. Some have degenerated so much that they have ceased to be the churches of God and have become synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, Christ always has had and will have in this world to the very end of the kingdom, to the end, a kingdom of those who believe in him and profess his name. So question, should we distinguish the two? Is it important if we're in a church and we see error, we see false doctrine, or we see sin in the church, is it important that we distinguish and we make note of it, and we teach our brothers and sisters about it, and we try to correct that error? Is it important that we do that? Yes. Does anybody know why we do that? Yes, brother. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, but I'm talking about like, What's the ultimate end if we don't do that? Brother Frank. Further sin, further wickedness, false doctrine in the church. There's been several splits of the church. We talk about the, you know, the, the schism of the church that happened, I think, around 1052 AD between what became the Catholic and then the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's a major split there. We look at Mormonism false doctrine that crept into the church there and had to split apart and become something else. What if Mormonism crept itself into the church at large and was here now? They preach a false Christ. 
They preach a Christ that was created being, a brother of Satan. That is not our Christ. Look at the Jehovah's Witness and their gospel. The fact that I tell you, what would you tell a person that was dying in the street? And they've literally told me there's nothing you can do. They don't have enough time to be saved. They have to gain knowledge. They have to gain enough knowledge to be regenerated. That is a false gospel of knowledge. Roman Catholic. I'm not going to say every Roman Catholic is a heretic, but if you follow the dogmas and the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church to the letter, they will tell you that you need to be regenerated by baptism. They will tell you that you need to earn your way into heaven, that Christ only opens the door, and that yet now you need to do penance. You need to confess your sins. You need to pray prayers of, you know, the... You know, the, the Our Fathers and the Hail Marys. And then what you don't cover, now you have to go to purgatory. And you have to pay it there. It wasn't finished with Christ. And in fact, not only is it not finished with Christ, but Christ is actively dying on the cross. When you take the, the, the Mass in a Roman Catholic church, they believe that the sacrifice of Christ is being re-offered up for your sins. Those things cannot save you. It's a false doctrine of works. And it's not an ongoing sacrifice. They, they deny that, that Christ's work was finished on the cross. However, when we're not talking about heretical doctrines and stuff like that, it's absolutely imperative that we seek unity with all those other churches that do qualify. Anything that we, we might have major or minor issues, we need to make, we need to make distinctions between the two. We need to say what issues are gospel issues and what issues are non-gospel issues, right? Are Presbyterians our brothers in Christ, yes or no? Why? Do they hold fast to the gospel? Yes. Where do we differ? Yes. Go ahead, sister. Well, I mean, for the most part, I would absolutely agree with you. But I think you have to understand that, I mean, when we say that the Presbyterians are brothers, we're not saying that every single Presbyterian church is good. There are good churches and there are bad churches, even in Baptists, right? So we're just saying that those that hold fast to the gospel, and those that preach the word of God and do it, you know, there, there are contexts within the Bible where Paul does seek to comfort us, and Christ does seek to comfort us. And when people get to those passages... Preachers should absolutely seek to comfort us the same way the Bible does. But there are absolutely places where the Bible condemns sin and warns us of hell, and it, we need to preach the entire counsel of God. What defines a church isn't whether or not they, you know, it's the consistent preaching of, of, of a message of comfort or a consistent message of preaching of hellfire. That's where you run into problems. The Bible's very balanced, and we need to allow the Bible to speak for itself. But when we fall into, when we defining what is a true church and what isn't, it's to these people preaching the gospel that I delivered to you, that which was first of all delivered to me, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose the third day according to the scriptures, and that you must truly put your faith in him to be saved. That's the gospel message, and that's what we seek to do. Yes, sister.
Ja. Honestly, that's where I bring them. I bring them right to the man on the cross. Uh, they usually say I don't. They, they usually just kind of stutter a lot, you know. But, you know, they're convicted about it. They truly believe, you know, there's other differences as well between Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm trying to look in all of it. But, you know, that's, that's one of the key differences is that they, they have no hope anymore. I, they, the, most of these people that I meet, Jehovah's Witnesses, don't even talk to people anymore. They just have their little racks of their tracks, and they just stand there. And they let people pass by, and if people want to track, they pick them up. If somebody wants to talk, they'll talk to them, but they just, they just stand there. They don't actively seek to have conversations with people, at least not that I've seen, not in many, many years. Um, but yeah, you, know, you can take them to all different types of places in the Bible, and it's just once they're convicted about a heresy, they're, they're going to keep it up. You only have the Word of God. We remind them that Christ said, Today you will be with me in paradise. This man had hours left to live. He wasn't, he wasn't about to feel good. He was about to have his knees broken. He was about to suffocate horribly in a, in a couple of hours. Um, and Jesus Christ said, you know, and this man said, you know, just remember me when you go into your kingdom. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Didn't require anything. This man was mocking Christ earlier in the day. Right? He was, they were both mocking him together. And then this man had a realization. Regeneration came upon him. And he was transformed into a believer of God that understand that Christ was innocent and he was guilty and he was putting his faith entirely in Jesus Christ. And we can just turn them to that and hope that there's a realization that's the word of God that's going to change their hearts. It's not you. It's not me. There's nothing we have. Who had their hand up? Yes, Brother Frank. And usually, like when we when we sort of set up shop, they quickly sort of disperse. More often than not, it doesn't take them long. Um, they just kind of walk off, you know. Um, but we pray for them. At times, we you know I've had conversations with them. Sometimes you want to have conversations with them every time, but you know even our hearts get hardened to the fact that we just keep having the same conversations with people over and over again, and it's discouraging. Um, you know, we ask God to give us patience in that time. But ultimately, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses should be more ashamed than anyone else. They're not using a false book like the Book of Mormon. They're using the Word of God, and they're mistranslating it. You know, they're specifically adding words to deny Christ his, you know, his absolute equality with the Father. Um, and it's, it's troublesome, you know. So, but we pray for them, get the opportunity to talk to them, learn about the, their religion, learn about... Where where the, the the shortcomings are, you know, I'm trying to do that now, and it's there's just so many of them. You know, we got the Hebrew Israelites now, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, and atheists. It's a it's it's a hard nut to crack, but everybody gets the same gospel. You're a sinner, and you are in need of a savior. Without Jesus Christ, you're going to hell for all eternity to pay for your own sins. Put your trust in Christ, and He will pay for your sins for you. 
And that's what we preach. Any other questions before I move on? Yes, sister. I mean, overall, I would say no. I would say that the natural sanctification of a person that's been transformed by the Holy Spirit would draw them out of a false church and out of false doctrine. That doesn't mean that will always happen. I can't say that somebody who's in a foreign country where the the gospel is hardly heard anywhere will have that option. So, but I, I, the, you know... Christians are truth seekers, and they will seek truth. They'll try to find it online. They'll try to find it in books and reading. And I would hope and pray that they would find it in a gospel-centered church where they preach the word of God. But I can't say that for sure. Does that answer your question? All right, so let's move on. I'm running out of time. You guys keep talking. It's my job. So what are the specific distinctions of a true church? Well, I first want to acknowledge that the Old Testament distinctions, right? God has always put his mark on those who were his. He actually made a point to make distinctions between Israel and those who were around them. He had special temple worship for the the Israelites. He gave them the gift of circumcision that marked them and set them apart, right? The word circumcision, it means to to cut off and separate from the rest. That, that's what holiness means, but that circumcision was a mark of holiness, that these people were cut off and they were separated from, from all the rest of the world. He gave them civil and ceremonial laws that were unique to them. He gave them festival celebrations that specifically celebrated things that God had done for his people. And likewise, in the New Testament, he gave the same the New Testament church Marks that separate them and distinguish them from the world. Um, so the two marks that we tend to are preaching and the sacraments, which both Luther and uh, Calvin wrote about, and I forgot to put it in my lesson. So it said that uh, Luther, in uh, the Augsburg Confession, It said that he defined the church as the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered. And then Calvin said something similar where he says, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. So we see those two key marks for the church that you see the right preaching, of truth, the gospel put first and foremost before its members, read and expounded upon and taught. Right? Usually have a Bible right here. It's just a tradition. It doesn't really mean anything, but we put it there to represent that we put the Bible first and foremost in this place. Right? Our worship leader is singing songs that are biblically inspired. We put up scripture verses. We start with prayer and reading from the word of God. We end with prayer and reading from the word of God. 
Pastor Bob or Pastor Paul preach from the Word of God and they expound upon what it, they're trying to teach us and to expound upon what the Word is saying to us. They're not telling us, oh, you know, I read this and it made me think about an old story from when I was a kid. Can't say that doesn't happen, but it's pretty much not trying to tell us what we're getting out of it. It's trying to tell us what God would have us get out of this. This is what God is trying to teach you. If you're having trouble understanding this word, this is what it means. If you haven't been blessed by this word yet, this is what it means. The Bible is is here. It says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And we use the Bible for all of those things here in this church to build you up, to edify you, to correct you, and to train you. The Bible says that it's the pastor's job, the elder's job, to build you guys all up for ministry so that you aren't just pew warmers that are now got the rest of your Sunday to yourselves. That when you walk out of this place, you've been trained and equipped to share your faith with people, to defend your faith, and to live your life in a more holy manner that is acceptable to God whenever possible as you seek to love and glorify him in your lives. That's the purpose of the church. Jesus said in Matthew 22, but regarding the resurrection from the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And this was, he was talking to the Sadducees, and he was talking about something that was from the Old Testament that happened hundreds of years before they came on the scene. And he's saying, when you read those words by that Old Testament prophet, God was speaking to you. The same thing goes for us. You read Isaiah or Ezekiel or the books of Moses or Job or the letters from Paul or Revelation. God is speaking to you. He means this word to encourage you and build you up. And then also we have the sacraments, or as we know them, the ordinances. The Catholics would say there's, I think, seven. But we only look at the ordinances that God has ordained. These are things that we believe God has ordered the church to do. And that was to partake of the Lord's Supper and baptism. I think the next couple weeks we're going to be looking at each one of those individually. So I'll spare us that today. In Mark Dever's book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, he actually wrote a book that he expounded upon a letter that he had sent to a church plant of his where he was teaching the elders what you need to have in a church in order for it to be healthy, what a church should actually look like. And he wrote that in the church you want to look for expositional preaching, looking at the Bible in its proper context and pulling out the meaning. That's what it means to be expositional. Other than that, you'd be eisegeting the text. You're not expounding, you're not exegeting and pulling out the meaning from the text. You're saying, I want the text to mean this, so I'm going to shoehorn in my philosophy into it. We don't do that here. Biblical theology. This is what the Bible would have us know. This is Biblical theology, systematic theology. We're in the class right now. We're teaching you right now about biblical theology. The gospel has to teach about the true Christ, true faith, a right soteriology, which is the the nature of of saving faith, the nature of salvation, that you are regenerated through faith by grace alone, in Christ alone, by the word of God alone, to the glory of God alone. You have to have a biblical understanding of conversion not decisional regeneration, but God's sovereign election of his people. 
You have to have a biblical understanding of evangelism. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You are just the soundboard. You are not responsible for anybody's salvation, but you are responsible to rightly preach that word to people. Biblical understanding of church membership. Healthy church is a protected church. Anybody's welcome to come in here and listen to the gospel. You are not welcome to come in here and start calling yourself Grace and Truth Church unless you understand who we are and you affirm the the biblical understanding that we have of the gospel, Jesus Christ, and everything that we teach here. We make it very clear to people. We put you through a a, a grueling three- to five-hour class if you want to join this church so that you understand who we are and what we believe. Biblical church discipline. Understanding that a church is imperfect and that we all sin and that at times people have to be corrected and that the church understands that and respects that and knows that and expects church discipline to happen. Expects that if somebody sees them in error that they would be expected to have, that they, that they would graciously accept correction. And if they see somebody in error where they fear for their lives and they fear for their salvation, they would lovingly go up to that brother or sister to try to correct them as well. And sometimes you need to bring people before the church, say this person is not correcting his behavior, and because of that, they're a danger to all of you. A concern for discipleship and growth. Luckily, you're in the discipleship class, so you've got that covered. We have Bible studies, and we have men's fellowship and ladies' fellowship. Sometimes we, we do other stuff as well. Always seeking to teach you and bring you up in knowledge and fear of the Lord, bringing you up in, in a, a greater understanding of the Word of God. And finally, biblical leadership. Understand that we don't, you know, it's, it's, it's not every man for himself in this church, that God has graciously blessed us with Pastor Bob and Pastor Paul, two godly men that love us, that are giving an account for us and are seeking to teach us, seeking to care for us, seeking to counsel us. And that we, uh, in response, we seek to be a blessing to them. We seek to live holy. We seek to, 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 to acknowledge their authority in the church. And we seek to, to, to grow under their teaching. Just a few other marks I would put out there. I would say every, almost everything we're seeing is under the blanket of having a firm commitment to the authority of the Scriptures in the church. Everything that you know about Jesus Christ, you know from the Word of God. Everything that we teach in this church, we know from the Word of God. We stand under the authority of Christ, and Christ has given us His Word that is affirmed by His Spirit speaking to us. A church must have prayer. A church must have corporate singing. You should see giving within the church. You should see good works within the church. A church that doesn't bear fruit is most likely not a church. And you must see love for one another. The Bible talks over and over and over about the one another commands. If you're not loving one another and you're not actively seeking to obey those commands, there's no love of God. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Any questions at this point? We'll be wrapping up quickly. Yes, sister. Yes. Well, we seek to. 
you know, I mean, there's certainly been times where we, that can't happen. You know, we had two elders in this church once and one left. And it took a little while before Paul was able to come on as a full elder. You know, so we only had one elder for a time. But God was gracious. God kept us humble. The, the intent was not to stay as a one elder church. We don't want to be a deacon-led church under any circumstances. Deacon, deacon is, there's a, a certain respect or something you want to say comes with being a deacon. It's, it's sort of an, an honored place within the church, but it's not a leadership role within the church. Um, certain men within the church might have the gift of preaching. Their authority comes solely as much as they hold to the word of God when they preach in the church, right? But it's just the elders. I had a former church where it was just two elders and one passed away. And it took a while before we were able to get another elder. But the point is we don't just put somebody in there because we want somebody in there. We pray to God that God will raise a man up, right? As we've needed deacons, we pray that God will raise men up to do the work of a deacon where the people start to see, hey, that guy would make a great deacon. That guy would make a great deacon. And same thing with elders, right? We think, we keep our eyes open. We think, I, 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 you know, I believe that guy knows the word of God. He seems like he's standing. But we don't make that choice for ourselves. That's something that the elders would say. We need a, we've determined that this man is, God is raising up this man. We're putting him before you. And we're going to give you time to think about it, and time to pray. And a time, at a certain time, we might instill this man as an elder. But we don't rush into these things. We confirm these things through God, through prayer, through, through watching a man's life, seeing that he's actually living biblically. Does that answer your question? Anyone else? Okay, so I'm going to try to wrap this up seven minutes. Don't time me. Stop looking at your watches. What is the purpose of the church? purpose of the church is to worship and praise God. It's to glorify God. Ephesians 1, we read, In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Second purpose of the church is discipleship and discipline. Ephesians 4, we read, And he himself gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as far as we look towards the outside world, we also have a purpose within the church of evangelism and charity. Jesus said in Luke 6, But love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And to that, Grudem also makes a wise point to note that we should always seek to have balance among those three things. A church that is all about praising and worshiping God, but doesn't seek to go out into the world and evangelize doesn't seek to disciple its children, aren't truly acting the way a church should. They're imbalanced. We want to love God. We want to love our brothers and sisters. We want to love the world. Not love the world is what it is, but we want to demonstrate our love towards the world through charity and evangelizing and sharing with them the truth of Christ. To that, I would just make these notes. I won't expound upon them. 
But I think the church is warned from certain things, from falling away, coming, becoming complacent. If you don't believe me, look through Revelation 2 and read through the letters to the churches. Jesus Christ has something about, against nearly every church, and falling away and becoming complacent is one of them. Following false teachers and a false gospel is another. Falling into sin, turning from the word of God, and neglecting to gather. That's something we don't want to do either. We absolutely must gather. A church is not a church. As we said, that word church isn't a good, you know, it comes from a German word, Kirche. It means the Lord's house. That I think was started somewhere in the 5th century in, in, the, in the Germanic language as, as the Gothics started to become prevalent in the church. And that's why we use the word church. But assembly would probably be a better word or the gathering of God. We are not a church if we don't gather. We're not a church if we don't assemble. That is our purpose, to gather together. So in light of all of those things, examine our church. What do you believe? How would we stack up? How does our church measure up in light of what we've learned? I was going to go through these things a lot slower, but I'm basically just going to read our church covenant really quick in our last couple minutes so that we understand, because this is a church covenant that we read for every member's meeting Everybody who becomes a member of this church reads this covenant and reads it aloud and affirms these things within the church. So think about everything we've learned, and as you read this covenant, ask yourself if these things are things that are displayed in what we just talked about, the nature of the church. It reads, Having, as we believe, been brought together by God for the promulgation of the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to propagate the doctrines of grace, we covenant to... Work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of the Christian church. Exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. Not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. To endeavor to bring up such as may at any time be under our care and nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by pure loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. Rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. Seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. To work together for the continuance of faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all the nations, continue to carry out the spirit of this covenant and commission of preaching the word of God when and if by God's providence we move from this place, and faithfully submit to the elders and leaders of the church for the instruction of our souls to lead a life that befits the gospel and glorifies God. I hope that you guys would see that everything that we're talking about, we seek to condense in that covenant. That we are seeking to maintain faithful preaching, church government, evangelism, worship, discipline, purity, unity, discipleship, that it's all there. 
This is what this church seeks to be. It seeks to be a true church of Jesus Christ that presents a true gospel into the world, observe its ordinances, worship, and practice of public prayer for his glory. Amen? And as I conclude, I just ask, uh, there's a couple of questions that Grudem asked in his book that I think are really fitting questions. One is, how does it feel to consider your place in the large collection of true church of believers when you think that God has called you to become a, a member of a, of a very exclusive club throughout all the ages, from Abraham right on down the line? You are part of that same body of Christ. And in light of that, considering what we know of the promise of the, the purpose of the church, where do you feel gifted to serve as a member of it? as a member of the body of Christ. Think about all of those, those metaphors that we saw, the vine, the body, the temple, the house, the branch. God doesn't just put you in a corner. Nobody puts a baby in a corner, right? Nobody puts a Christian in a corner and just leaves him there. Christ brings him out of the world, but he doesn't have him hide in a hollow. He goes out into the world, he shares the gospel, seeks to, to save the lost, Help people. He seeks to love his brothers and sisters. Amen? So, as you go out from this place, consider doing that today. And with that, let us bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so 